Good morning. It uh, has been so great to be able to share with you over these last three weeks the lessons that God has uh, been teaching me over the course of the last three years or so. Um, the first week that we were together, we talked about the Jesus lesson, that if you make God the center of your life, then your life will be unshakable. And then there was the friendship lesson that you need close relationships with other Christians centered around your shared life together in God. And you need that like you need your next breath. And last week was the life lesson that life here on earth is hard and brief, but eternity is very, very long. And I think those are lessons that all of us need to learn in the course of, uh, of walking through life and particularly uh, walking through life in relationship with God. And if you weren't here or weren't able to hear all of those messages, they are available at the church website at enview.org. Uh, and uh, you can go there and listen to them, uh, particularly if you're struggling with loss or grief or, or difficulties or challenges in your own life. I want to encourage you to, to, to listen to those and to be encouraged. Or maybe there's somebody that you know that you can direct there. Three years ago, I had been serving as a pastor at a church in Michigan for almost nine years. I'd been married for 15 years. We had two kids. Everything was humming along. And then when Tanya died, it was the hardest thing that I've ever endured, of course. I didn't know I could hurt that much. I continued to function because I had to. I had two boys that were counting on me. I had a church that was ready for me to come back after my leave of absence. But truthfully, I was a shell of myself. I felt like I'd been ripped in half. That part of me had died with Tanya. Like I told you last week, I tried so hard to pull through it. I, um, the, the church had been kind of stagnated for a while, and I thought, you know, if, if the church gains traction now, if we grow now when I'm weak and empty, it'll prove that it was God that did it, because I, I, I certainly didn't make it happen. It's not me. I've got nothing. So I was praying and looking and hoping and, and waiting for God to do something. But after seven months of trying to be a single dad slash senior pastor, I realized I didn't have the stamina to keep going. And, I, and even though I begged God and pleaded and cried, I could tell he wasn't going to give me what I needed to keep going. He was moving me out of full-time ministry. People told me when I resigned that I was strong and courageous and wise. But I tell you, I did not feel like any of that. I felt like my ministry was taken from me. I didn't have any choice. That I was just along for the ride. In some ways, losing my pastor it was harder than losing my wife because, because the second loss was added to the first loss. And it made my overall sense of loss feel even greater. That it just keeps going. It just keeps getting bigger. It just keeps getting worse. And it also meant that I was beginning some new phase of my life. I didn't even know what it would look like. All I knew was, for the first time, she and I wouldn't be facing it together. And I, and I struggled after I uh, stepped down from the church. I struggled for a while to really even trust God. You know, I, uh, if He would allow me to hurt so deeply, then, then what else might He do to me? What fresh new pains lay in front of me? 
when Tanya died, I, I clung to God and I believed in him and I trusted him and I, and I thought he would pull me through it. And, and it just got worse. And I thought, well, how much worse is it going to get? I was scared. There seemed to be no limit to the suffering that he was allowing to wash over me. And, and I started to rest, wrestle with identity issues. I, you know, if I'm not a pastor, well, then who am I? And I wrestled with achievement issues. After all that I gave and all that I did and all that I poured into the church, I still never saw the results that I was looking for. Why couldn't I ever make it grow? Why couldn't I ever make it happen? I wrestled with, with ego issues. Would I ever get credit for all that I had put into the church? I wrestled with forgiveness issues. The elders and I had a major blow-up shortly after I handed in my resignation. And I felt like they were attacking me, like they were coming at me at my lowest point ever in, in my whole life. And so I felt inadequate. I took offense. I felt broken. I don't know. Have you ever felt broken? Like you've just come to the absolute end of what you can manage, what you can handle. And there's just nothing left. Where you've put it all out there and your life is still crashing down around you, coming apart at the seams. Do you know that kind of desperation? Because I promise you, if you've never been there, someday you will be. You will be. And what do you do? In the middle of my darkest days, I was reading in my Bible in Psalm 89. And as I was reading through that, it was like this light came streaming in from a window from somewhere into my darkness. And I thought, yes, this, this is it. Somebody understands what I'm going through. And they put it down here in Psalm 89 just for me. This is my life. And it gave me the encouragement that I needed. Encouragement that I want to pass on to you as we wrap up this series. So please turn to Psalm 89 with me. This psalm is written by someone named Ethan the Ezraite. And there's been a lot of speculation about who he was and what time, he, time period he lived in and the events that were going on in his life that prompted him to write all this. But what, what is clear is that he was at a loss to explain exactly what God was up to. Now, Psalm 89 is pretty long, 52 verses. And we're going to read it all, so bear with me. But, but we'll go back through and kind of decipher it together. But before we do that, we need to talk briefly about a promise that God made to King David long ago. It's in 2 Samuel 7, if you want to jot that down and maybe look that passage up later, if you're interested, if you want to read through it. It's where God gives this promise to David. Now, Saul was the first king of Israel. God anointed Saul and chose him. But then Saul turned evil and rejected God, and so God rejected him. And he removed his blessing from him, and he cut off his line, and he said, nobody from Saul's family will ever become king. I'm starting all over with this whole king business. And he found David, and he replaced Saul with David, and he said, here's a new king who will be uh, king over Israel. 
And he made a promise to David that what he had done to Saul, he would never do to David. God said, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That's the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. And that promise is what's at the heart of Psalm 89. So let's remember that as we read through this together. Psalm 89 is a masculine of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Selah. And when the Bible says Selah, when you read that in the Psalms, because uh, these Psalms were originally songs that were uh, sung with instruments. And, and so Selah, what that probably means is it's an indication that there's going to be an instrumental section where there are no words, but the instruments keep playing. And the purpose for that little break is to reflect on what you've just sung. So what that means essentially is to let's, let's stop and think about what we just read, what, what immediately preceded this, which is this promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. Let's stop and think about that. The heavens, verse 5, praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who's like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the counsel of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crushed Rahab, which is a reference to Egypt. So you crushed Egypt like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. The heavens are yours, and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon sing your, for joy at your name. And Tabor and Hermon are, are two mountains in Israel that are on the east and west. So there's the north and south and east and west. It's all God's. Your arm is endued with power. Your right hand is strong. Your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They exult in your righteousness. For you are their glory and strength, and by your favor you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people. You said, I've bestowed strength on a warrior. I have exalted a young man from among the people. I have found David, my servant. With my sacred oil, I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. No enemy will subject him to tribute. No wicked man will oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him. And through my name, his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my savior. 
I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne, as long as the heavens endure. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. Selah. Just think about it. Think about how God made his promise, swearing by himself, by his holiness, his faithfulness, his inability to lie. God made this promise, this intractable, unalterable promise to David. Verse 38. But you have rejected. You have spurned. You've been angry with your anointed one. This is the psalmist talking to God. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and defiled his crown in the dust. You've broken through all his walls, reduced his strongholds to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He's become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You've turned back the edge of his sword and have not supported him in battle. You've put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with a mantle of shame. Selah. Think about all that in light of what God promised. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you have created all men. What man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of the grave? Selah. Oh, Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies have mocked, O Lord, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. It's a strange end to a strange psalm, isn't it? What do we make of this? Now, I'm not even going to try to guess what events in Ethan's life prompted him to write this. People far smarter than I am can't seem to agree. So that's a puzzle I'm not going to try to put together this morning. But one thing that is clear is that from where Ethan sat... He could not reconcile the promises that God had given to David with the circumstances that he was observing in his life. 
He had no mechanism, no framework to figure out how to put them together, how to make any sense of any of it. Because you see, verses 19 to 37 are in straight contradiction with verses 38 to 45. There's no reconciliation between them. Verse 22, no enemy will subject him to tribute. Verse 41, all who pass by have plundered him. Verse 23, I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. Verses 42 and 43, you have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all of his enemies rejoice. You've turned back the edge of his sword and have not supported him in battle. Verse 24, my faithful love will be with him. Verse 28, I will maintain my love to him forever. My covenant will never fail. Then verse 39, you have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. Verse 29, I will establish his line forever, as long uh, his throne for as long as the heavens endure. And then verse 44, you have put an end to his splendor. You've cast his throne to the ground. Ethan was saying, God, here's what you promised, and here's what I see, and they don't line up. I do not think that it escaped Ethan's attention that, that, that his psalm was in contradiction with himself. In other words, I don't think he wrote this and then somebody came to him later and said, do you realize that this does not agree? And he said, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. I think what he's saying is, God, here's what you promised and here's what I see. And I don't know how to reconcile that. I believe what you promised, but I also believe what I see. So what does that mean? It means that there will be times in your life where the promises of God seem to be in direct opposition to everything that you are experiencing. There will be times in your life when the promises of God look like they are in direct opposition to everything that you are experiencing. Where you read your Bible, you turn on your Christian radio, you go to church, and everything inside of you wants to cry out, oh, give me a break. What a bunch of garbage. Tell me how any of that that you're talking about or singing about fits with my life, with the mess of my life. You tell me that. And when you're feeling that way, when you're thinking that way, that's called a crisis of faith. And it is one of the greatest things that can happen to you. Because when you're experiencing a crisis of faith, you are the closest that you will ever be to understanding who God is and how God works. How do you do that? Well, you hang on. You hang on. It's what Ethan did. You know, despite whatever it was that he was going through, he still chose to write those first 37 verses. And the last one. He chose to begin and end his song with praise to God and to trust that somehow God was going to come through. He didn't know how it would happen, but he believed that somehow God would bring it together. That God would take these two irreconcilable things and somehow reconcile them. Because that's what God does. In fact, his biggest concern actually wasn't that God would fail in the end to keep his word. It was that he wouldn't live to see it. See verse 47, he says, Remember how fleeting is my life. 
He's saying, remember, God, I don't have all the time in the world like you do. Keep me in mind. I don't want it to end this way. I want to be able to see your salvation come. He was confused. He was scared. He was beaten down. He was broken. But he hung on. And this really gets to the heart of what our relationship with God is all about. When I'm, when I'm hurt, when I'm confused, when I feel lost and abandoned and broken, when everything around me looks like the opposite of what I think God ought to be doing, then I've got a choice. We talked about it in week one in the Jesus lesson. When I'm hurt, I can either run away from God or I can run to God. You see, God is not worried when His promises are threatened. His promises always get threatened. There's Abraham. God promised him a son. But for years and years and years, no child came. Abraham took the situation into his own hands, substituted his own wisdom. That didn't work out so well. But in the end, God did bring him the son that He had promised. And Joseph, God promised in a dream to raise him to a high position above his brothers and even his parents. But his brothers sent him into Egypt in slavery. They sold him. And he was wrongly sent to prison. Years he languished there. It looked impossible. But God honored his promise and he raised Joseph to the number two position in all of Egypt. Look at the nation of Israel, God's special chosen people that He selected for Himself out of everybody. 400 years as slaves in Egypt. Generations and generations never saw any hope in their lives. But God honored His promise at just the right time and rescued His people from slavery. Jeremiah wept and wailed When Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple of God was defiled, and the nation of Israel was taken into captivity. How would God's promises ever be fulfilled now? But they were, because God eventually restored His people. And Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, betrayed and killed. How could God's promises ever be fulfilled with a crucified Savior? How could that make any sense? But God did fulfill His promises. See, this is, this is faith in the dark. It's not blind faith. It's not faith just for the sake of having faith. It's not faith based on depra- desperation because you've got to believe in something and this is as good as anything, I suppose. It's faith that says... You know what? I don't know the future. I have, I have no idea what the future holds. And I don't understand the present. It does not make sense to me. But one thing I do know is that God always keeps His promises. So I can trust Him. He always keeps His promises. After I stepped down from the church... In November 2013, I said to God, okay, I hate this. I hate everything about it. 
but I'm still yours. So what do I do now? I had a bachelor's degree in Bible, a master's of divinity, and 12 years of ministry experience. It's what I loved, and I couldn't do it anymore. I had 10 years of restaurant work going back to age 14. It's a lot of evenings and weekends, which doesn't work at all for a single dad. So it was back to square one, starting over at 40. I actually Googled that because I didn't know what to do. didn't know what that looked like. I thought maybe Google would have the answers for me. I eventually settled on becoming a paralegal, but there were few openings where I was living in the town of Michigan. Most, most of the lawyers there were in solo practice, and they didn't use paralegals, so I would have to move. Washington was the obvious choice because my sister and my parents are here. So I enrolled in January 2014 at Edmonds Community College with online classes, moved out here last summer to finish up. So now I had lost my wife, my career, all my goals for the future, my church, my friends, my home. The losses were starting to pile up. But through it all, God was up to something else as well. I wonder, could I get a volunteer to join me up here on the platform just I promise not to be mean to you. Just anybody that can come on up here. Any brave souls out there? All right, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Let's have a hand for the one brave soul who's willing to come up here. I've got toys. All right. And your name is? I'm Gary. Hi, Gary. Nice to meet you. Thank you. You too. All right. Can I have you hold out your hands for a minute? Okay, perfect. All right. So I've got a few things here. Uh, to give you, we've got some, some pots and pans, you know, they're, um, the responsibilities of daily life and managing our, our homes. There's a, a nice little kettle for you. Uh, we've got a bowl here that represents the food that we eat and the things that we have. We've got a vehicle that we all have to, you know, drive and maintain. There's home repairs and things that we have to do. And Do you think I could put much more in your hands? Not much. What do you think is the only way that I could put something in your hands? Thank you so much, Gary. I appreciate it. Can we have a hand for Gary? Right? Sometimes God has to take things out of our hands in order to put something else in, doesn't he? For me, I had to suffer the loss of all of my dreams in order to dream new dreams. I had to lose my way so that I could get pointed in a new direction. I had to be broken in order to be made new again. You know, I've always known that um, I was meant to be married. I, I'm just wired that way. It's, uh, it's just part of who I am. And, and Tanya and I would talk about what we would do if one of us were to ever die. I don't know if those of you who are married, if you ever have that kind of conversation, it's a little morbid, but, you know, we had that conversation. And, and I told her that the only promise that I could make to her was that I wouldn't bring a date to the funeral. 
Because I love being married. I was created to be married. It's, it's, it's just woven into who I am. And so I knew when she died that, that eventually I wanted to be married again. I knew that that's what I would want to do. But that first year after she passed away, I wasn't at all ready. And, and I knew that too. I was still looking backward at everything that I had lost. I was not looking forward. And, and I didn't have time. You know, I was trying to care for my boys and manage my own grief and lead this organization. And after I resigned, for the first time, I had time to stop and think and reflect. And I began to think that maybe I would be ready soon to start dating somebody. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to be looking for somebody, I should spend some time thinking about who it is that I'm looking for. And um, I began to kind of make a list of, of all the things that were really crucial for me, things that I absolutely could not compromise on that I needed to have in a wife. And so I thought, well, I, first and foremost, I need somebody who completely loves Jesus as much as I do. That's that's crucially important. And then I need somebody who's willing to take on two little boys who are challenging and full of energy and full of grief and love them like they were her very own. I needed someone who was willing to be a pastor's wife if that's where God leads me back to. So the, the list of available bachelorettes is getting increasingly short. I needed someone who was good at relationships, things like clear communication and conflict resolution and not jumping to conclusions and not assuming. You know, someone who has all of those relationship and communication skills but somehow isn't married. Someone who has the same approach to parenting that I have so that we can be a team together. Because if we're not on the same page, I knew that, that the kids would drive us apart. And that wouldn't make anybody's life better. Someone who has the same approach to handling money. Someone who, who is basically all ready for marriage. Because I wasn't willing to start over. Tanya and I were teenagers when we met. You know, we, we essentially grew into adults together. We figured out life together with a lot of trial and error. And that was hard. And... And I just was not ready to go through all that again with somebody else to, to teach them all the lessons I had already learned the first time around. I needed someone who was ready to go. And so when I looked at my list of things that I absolutely had to have in a wife, I realized this was going to be maybe a little more difficult than I had considered at first. And when I looked at my list and the single women that I knew in my circle, I realized that what I really needed was a miracle. So I started praying for a miracle. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to ask for a miracle, I might as well go all the way, right? So I asked God for someone with a similar kind of personality to me and someone who was organized and who shares my sense of humor and comes from a good family and a bunch of other less important things that ultimately don't matter nearly as much just because I thought it would be nice. 
And now for all those who say that God doesn't answer prayer, I want to disagree in the most strenuous terms possible. Because about a week after I started praying this way, I got a call on the phone from a missionary that my church back in Michigan supports. And now I had talked to this guy on the phone a few times. We would emailed back and forth, but I had never met him. And he calls me up and he asks me if I'm dating anybody. And I told him no. And then he asked me if I would be willing to let him buy me a ticket to come out to Arizona to meet his cousin. And I thought, this is a really weird conversation. (laughs) And then I thought, well, free trip to Arizona in the middle of winter, and I live in Michigan, so what have I got to lose, right? And then finally, I can't pray for a miracle and then not accept an offer like this that comes out of the blue. So in January, just as I was starting my online classes... I flew out to Arizona and met Noel, and we started talking on the phone. At first, every couple of weeks, and then every week, and then every few days, and then every day, and then hours and hours and hours every day. She flew out to Michigan to meet the boys. That was in May of last year. They fell in love with her instantly, and she with them. We got engaged that week and got married a couple months later. This coming Saturday is our one-year anniversary. Yeah. And Noel is everything I asked God for. Even the things that weren't as important. Even the, the extra stuff that didn't really matter. Every single thing. And what's even harder to believe is that I'm exactly what she was looking for in a husband. Because she had her own list. God is so good. And I believe that what happened is that that God gave me a desire for her and she for me before we even met. I think that, that this was God's plan all along. And that when I began praying about what it would what I would need to have in a wife. And when I began praying for my miracle, that God was putting into my heart the things that would lead me to Noel. But as much joy as we find in each other, we know that God's purposes are bigger than simply our happiness. He's done it for His glory. For His glory. And so that we can achieve more together than either of us could alone. So as we've been praying about what's next, we've found God leading us to become missionaries in Papua New Guinea, which is an island country in the South Pacific, just north of Australia. Noel's cousin, the one who introduced us, is the head of a missions organization called Finisterre Vision which is focused on bringing the good news of Jesus to the Finisterre mountain range of Papua New Guinea. This is the most linguistically diverse country on the face of the earth. Over 80, uh, I'm sorry, over 850 languages are spoken in Papua New Guinea. And more than 100 language groups can be found in the remote and rugged Finisterre mountains that have never heard the gospel. Never. In the entire history of the world. Now, missionary work has begun to penetrate this region. And word has gotten out that there's a message from God that's being brought by these strange missionary people. And these tribes 
are sending official delegations of their elders and their leaders to those villages where missionaries are working. And they're saying, we've heard that you carry a message from God. And we want to receive this message from God too. When will someone come to our people to tell us this message? Sometimes those people travel for days and days on foot just to ask for missionaries. And they go back home alone because there are no missionaries to send to them. There are more tribes asking for missionaries than there are missionaries to be able to send to them. And that just breaks my heart. So we will go. Not everybody can go, of course, but we can. There's no reason we can't. And so we will. We're uh, beginning our training right here, September 11th, 12th, and 13th. Noel's cousin is coming up here to the Seattle area to start the training with us. And we want to invite you to consider joining us. We can't go alone. The, the, the ministry model is, is built on a, a teamwork model. So we'll be there with one or two other couples or families. We just don't know who they are yet. Maybe God is calling you. We want to invite you to come and, and participate in the training with us. The, the training session that's going to be done is called the Big Picture, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's uh, an overview of what it looks like to serve one of the tribes in Papua New Guinea to give you a big picture of the ministry there. So you can get an idea of what it looks like to go and to land in one of these villages, to learn the language, to invent an alphabet, to teach them to read and start translating the Bible. And maybe that sounds daunting. Certainly it'll be challenging. But it's not the first time that people have learned a language and shared the gospel with people. There's a way for it to happen. And that's what the training is all about. We have two years of training that we're going to be starting. So it's about two years that we're looking to go in the fall of 2017. So to sign up for the training, uh, for this first training session with us, there's, there's no obligation, there's no cost. We have a sign-up sheet out in the lobby. You're not signing up to go. You're just signing up to get information. To say, well, I want to hear more. I want to ask questions. I want to explore this and check it out. So if you're at all interested in participating on any level, we want to invite you to, to come and, and participate in the training with us. There are short-term missions opportunities, like going to help and build a missionary house. You know, we're going to have to have a house to live in, and I can't build it myself. We'll need people to, to help. So if you want to serve in a short-term way to help us build our house, there's opportunities to go. We definitely need people who are committed to be, being prayer partners with us. And uh, if you want to pray for us, it would be great to enroll in the training as well so that you can get a, a better idea of what it is that we'll be doing and, and what, what it will take to get us there. Or maybe, just maybe, you're interested in the possibility of joining and serving alongside us. 
We have a video that we want to show that um, kind of highlights the ministry and, and uh, what's involved in going. The Bible says that uh, we will be as witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the great thing about the Great Commission is that it never goes backward. It only goes forward. Someday there will be a generation that moves the ball across the goal line. When the last people group is reached, we say mission accomplished. And it very well could be in Papua New Guinea. It is remote. It is rugged. It's hard to get to. But they've invented helicopters these days. And the missionaries that serve there use solar power. So there's electricity to power computers and refrigerators and other things that are needed to support the ministry there. The technology exists. The thing that, mat- that matters now is, are there people who are willing? So if you're interested in any of these ways in being part of Finister Vision, we want to encourage you to come talk to us at the table out in the lobby and to sign up for the prayer list or for the class or both. The training starts right here at Northview. It's September 11th. It'll be a Friday evening. You don't even have to take off of work for most of you. It goes all day Saturday, wraps up Sunday afternoon. We also have um, booklets at, in the, at the table. Uh, we ordered a bunch of these to come, and they got lost in the mail. So I think we're down to three, is it? We have three left at the table. So, um, you know, we just asked... If you're, if you're very interested, please take one of the three. If, you're, if they're all gone and, um, and uh, you still want one, let us know and we'll get one to you. We also have bookmarks that you can pray for us. But we want to give those things and we want to encourage you to stop by and check it out. You know, God is still in the redemption business. If you let Him, God will redeem the tragedies of your life. How do I know that? Look at the cross. The cross is the worst thing ever. The Son of God, perfect, righteous, holy, murdered on a cross. How could you imagine anything worse? It's the worst thing that could ever happen in the world. And yet God took the worst thing ever and made it the best thing ever. That's God's redemption power. And so here's the sovereignty lesson. God allows His promises to be threatened so that we will be able to tell stories of His greatness. God allows His promises to be threatened so that we can tell stories of His greatness. See, my story isn't about me. It's about God. I didn't heal myself. I didn't rebuild my life. God did. 
And He'll do the same for you in your brokenness. Except that we almost always miss out on what He has for us because we short-circuit the process. And we bail on Him because it's too hard. This marriage, this situation, this, this faith is too hard. I quit. And we forfeit the miracles and His redemption power. See, God knew what He was doing in Ethan, the Ezraite's life. He was fulfilling the promise that He made to David, just in a way that Ethan never could have imagined. God fulfilled His promise to David through Jesus. Jesus is the one who has the eternal throne. See, the throne that lasts forever was not a political throne, but it's the throne of the kingdom of God. And so the sovereign God redeemed His promise when it was threatened. He knew what He was doing. And He knew what He was doing in my life. And He knows what He's doing in your life. The question is, are we going to hang on when God's promises are threatened? See, we always hang on to something. It's just a matter of what it's going to be. Are you going to hang on to your resentment, your doubts, your desires, the things that you want, your fears? Are those the things that you just won't give up? Or are you going to let go of those things? to allow God to put something else in and hang on to Jesus. We're going to close with a song that I wrote the week that Tanya was diagnosed with cancer. And I didn't know at that time where it would take me, but what I knew was that I needed to hold on.